When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Breaking news, a redacted version of the Mar-a-Lago affidavit will be released tomorrow. The lead starts right now. Moments ago, a judge set a deadline to release a redacted version of the Mar-a-Lago affidavit. How much could we learn tomorrow about why the FBI executed its unprecedented search at Trump's home? And under attack, the U.S. responds after three U.S. service members are injured in Syria by rocket fire. Could high-level negotiations be an explanation of this new surge in military activity? Plus, News you can use about forgiving student loans. CNN is asking, what exactly is the rollout plan to relieve millions of dollars in student loan debt? Senator Elizabeth Warren will visit the lead as well to respond to some of the criticisms of Biden's plan. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We're going to start with breaking news in our politics lead. Just moments ago, a judge ordered the release of the Mar-a-Lago affidavit, but with the redactions proposed by the Justice Department. The affidavit is the document that outlines why prosecutors thought they needed to take the unprecedented step of searching the home of a former president and why they believed there was probable cause that crimes had been committed. Let's get straight to CNN Justice correspondent Jessica Schneider. Jessica, what did U.S. Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt say in his decision? Well, Jake, the judge here acting with remarkable speed. Less than four hours after the DOJ submitted their proposed redactions, the judge has gone through their document and said that those redactions are sufficient and they should be revealed to the public. So the judge putting it exactly this way, he says, I find that the government has met its burden of showing a compelling reason, good cause, to seal portions of the affidavit because disclosure would reveal, one, the identities of the witnesses, law enforcement agents and uncharged parties, two, the investigation's strategy, direction, scope, sources, and methods, and three, grand jury information protected by federal rule of criminal procedure 6E. So the judge here saying that the DOJ has sufficiently laid out why they need to redact all of the things they suggested to redact, and he's satisfied with what the DOJ has put forward here. We've heard prosecutors argue repeatedly how any real disclosure from this affidavit would significantly derail their ongoing criminal investigation into these classified documents. So the DOJ had about a week to come up with what might be sufficient for the judge. They presented their plan to him by noon today, 
And Jake, the judge here is satisfied with what the DOJ has put forward, which could mean that the DOJ is going to give us a little bit of a glimpse into this investigation. They had previously said that if they were to make any redactions, it would basically make the whole document unreadable. When they made that argument in court, the judge didn't seem to be satisfied with that. So it's possible here the DOJ is maybe giving a little bit more than they had wanted to and just enough to satisfy this judge. We'll, of course, know more tomorrow by noon, or it could even be sooner when DOJ unveils this to the public. So, Jessica, will we definitely see this this affidavit tomorrow? We will. The judge has ordered that it be made public by noon tomorrow. Of course, that means DOJ could actually make this public at any point between now and noon tomorrow. They could make it uh, public sooner. So, yes, the judge's orders are quite clear here. And, you know, DOJ probably knew this going in, that they had to make enough uh, redactions, not too many redactions, that the judge would be satisfied. And they are will not be revealing any significant part of this investigation. And the judge has said that they have made their case and he's happy with what they're presenting here. So we will see it soon, Jake. All right, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. Turning now to some brand new CNN reporting. Despite Donald Trump's public claims that he's been cooperating with the National Archives, he's been increasingly listening to outside legal advice to do the exact opposite. And now Trump allies are becoming increasingly concerned about a potential indictment. CNN's Kristen Holmes and Gabby Orr are part of the team breaking this new reporting. Gabby, tell us about this legal advice Trump's getting about cooperating with the archives. Well, Jake, we know some of the folks who have been helping Trump navigate these these matters for the past couple of months. You know, Christina Bob, Jim, Jim Trustee, Evan Corcoran, those are familiar names. But what we now know is that Trump began taking advice from Tom Fitton, who is the head of a conservative legal activism group, Judicial Watch, um, earlier this year, uh, shortly after he returned those 15 boxes to the National Archives in January. And what Fitton was telling Trump behind the scenes is really interesting because he was essentially saying, in his belief, Trump had full authority over the documents that he brought from the White House to Mar-a-Lago at the end of his presidency, that he never should have returned documents to archives in the first place, and that if the archives archives came knocking again, that he shouldn't turn over any more documents. Hmm. Now, we know that Trump didn't always listen to Tom Fitton because in June, during that meeting with F- with federal investigators, his attorneys did turn over additional documents. But this is it, it really speaks to sort of the behind the scenes advice that he was giving getting from people outside of his legal team. Hmm. And Kristen, it's not just Trump allies. We should know worried about a possible indictment. Sources say Donald Trump uh, himself is even posing questions about it to his inner circle about whether or not he's going to get indicted. That's right. So we knew he had been grilling his attorneys on whether or not they believed he would be indicted, at times even expressing skepticism that that would ever happen. But we've since learned that these conversations have expanded to members of his inner circle, asking what do they believe the end game is going to be? Do they believe he's going to be indicted? And many of these sources are telling us they think it's because he is actually concerned. Now, one of them noted to me that while, of course, Donald Trump has been in legal peril before, even when he was president, this time did feel different and potentially more dangerous, particularly given that he doesn't have that same legal protection he had in the executive office. And Gabby, part of the effort to get the documents back included using FedEx uh, to deliver letters from Kim Jong-un. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, so I obtained an email from a senior archives official to representatives of Trump that was sent last June. And in that email, they agreed to allow Trump's representatives to send the correspondence between North Korean leader Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump when he was president back to the archives via FedEx first overnight. So just to overnight ship it to them. Um, They even laid out instructions like here are the specific days where we we would be comfortable with you mailing these to us. Please send tracking info. of course, Trump didn't actually follow through with that. Uh, it took another seven months for the archives to get their hands on the correspondence between Trump and Kim Jong-un. And, you know, this really speaks to just how accommodating they were willing to be. They were so desperate to get the this sensitive material. Correct. Yeah, yeah. They were so desperate to get this material back that they were willing to allow his team to FedEx documents as sensitive as, you know, correspondence between two foreign leaders. Uh, it, it's, it just speaks, again, to all of the struggles that they dealt with that they were, as they were trying to get both classified and non-classified materials back from Mar-a-Lago. And, and Kristen, it, this, the, the, the legal team that Donald Trump has around him, um, I, I've heard folks question their legal competence, and apparently people close to Trump are, are doing that as well. Yeah, and that started almost immediately after the search. A lot of sources pointing me to an interview between a Fox News host and Trump ally and Christina Bob, who is one of Trump's attorneys, in which Bob seemed to be in over her head when being pressed by this Trump ally on what that legal strategy was. And just a reminder, Bob is a former TV host at One America News, the pro-Trump right-leaning news network. Uh, so that was one of the big concerns that they were pointing out. What is the legal strategy? The other one was that it took them two weeks to actually file anything. And then when they did, the judge said it was problematic and sent it back for them to make clarifications. And then lastly, and this is obviously something that we have seen over the entirety of Trump's tenure in office and out, is that Trump appears to want to play this out, not legally, but in the politics, in the public sphere. Yes, exactly. And so, and this is always a problem for Trump's attorneys. But one example of that is that letter from the National Archives that was released from a conservative writer and Trump ally. Trump picking up on it saying, oh, this is political. You can see that this shows that the Biden White House was behind it. But legally, we're hearing from experts who say this is a damning letter, that this actually goes against everything that Trump has said. So all of this is really adding into why people are concerned about the legal team, and particularly given when we're talking to people who are concerned he is going to be indicted, that there is a real legal peril this time. Yeah, people who don't want him to be indicted right. but are afraid he will. Thank you so much to both of you for that excellent reporting. Uh, joining us now to discuss is uh, Don Ayer. He served as the Deputy Attorney General under President George H.W. Bush. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. We now know that we're going to see this redacted search warrant affidavit tomorrow. Um, what do you expect the DOJ will have allowed to be unredacted? What will we actually see? Jake, I, th- I think what we're going to see is not very much information about uh, the reasons for the search and and any information about the ongoing investigation. And the reason I think that is the, the, the Department of Justice made very clear uh, in court uh, when, when this was raised that they really couldn't produce much of anything. And then the judge on Monday made his own statement that he really understood and sort of saw the problem the government had been pointing out, um, but nonetheless wanted to go forward and see what the government would propose. So I I think the best speculation I can offer, and I think it is speculation, is that the government followed through pretty much on on what they had had foreshadowed in court, that they really couldn't uh, allow much of it out consistent 
uh, with with their concerns about the integrity of the investigation and the protection of confidential witnesses and that sort of thing. And the judge, in his order, was very clearly agreeing with what the department proposed. So I, th I think we're going to see a document that is mostly blacked out. And I, I really don't know, you know, the, the speculation about, well, maybe they tried to disclose more than they thought they could before. I, I really don't. I don't think that's terribly likely. I think the concerns they had were pretty hard and, and solid. And I think it's pretty likely that they stuck with those concerns. We'll see. We'll see tomorrow, I think. There are obviously two competing uh, principles here. One, uh, the desire to protect the uh, investigation that is ongoing, uh, to protect the witnesses, uh, and uh, to not give a roadmap to potential defendants. And then there is the, the public right to know and the public right to have confidence that this, uh, this raid by the FBI, this search, uh, which was obviously legal, um, that it was just, uh, that there were good reasons for it. Uh, do you have any concerns that if the document is mostly black and, and so redacted, um, that it could lead to a loss of credibility uh, or, or at least a, an opening for the Trump forces to, um, you know, throw up guerrilla dust and make it seem as though this is a conspiracy? Well, Jake, I, I think they definitely will spin whatever occurs tomorrow in a way that will be designed to foment uh, distrust and suspicion of the FBI and of the Department of Justice. That's the that's the game plan here all the way around. And um, so we'll have to see what they do. But I think the most important thing to have in mind is that everything we know in terms of facts is that the government had very powerful reasons for getting this search warrant. They've tried every way from Sunday to try to get the documents otherwise. We've seen various correspondence showing how, how diligently they work to get the material without having to go through a search warrant, um, and, and they failed. And so they had to do what they had to do, and clearly the judge feels that the search was totally justified, and clearly they came up with documents that were um, seriously classified, at, at a, some of them at a very high level. So I think the thing that people should keep in mind is that everything we know as a matter of fact, not spin, but fact, shows the government's doing exactly what we as citizens would all want it to do. Mm -hmm. And Donald Trump is, you know, and others on his side are trying to spin the story in strange ways to make it sound suspicious. It's not suspicious. It's right. completely straight up and sensible. You heard the new CNN re uh, reporting uh, sources saying that uh, Donald Trump is increasingly concerned about a pending indictment, uh, asking people in his inner circle about the odds. Do you think uh, an indictment might actually be coming? Oh, I, I mean, you have to qualify the question you're asking about what, an indictment for what and on what time frame do you think an indictment might be coming? I think any thought that there's an imminent indictment coming related to this search, um, I think is is highly improbable. Uh, now, whether down the road, it, it might depend upon if he has the nuclear secrets in his basement. Um, you know, that's one thing. You know, I don't, we don't know what these documents are. I think the bigger question in the long run is whether there may be charges filed relating to the much, much, in many ways, cosmic and bigger question that Donald Trump was involved in, that we all saw if we watched the, the select committee hearings, the evidence is very strong from those hearings that Donald Trump was engaged systematically on multiple levels in trying to overturn an election which he knew had been fairly 
and accurately uh, handled. And that's the big banana here. I think that's the big issue. And that's the issue that um, Merrick Garland and the department are going to have to grapple with over the next coming months. And also the investigation in Georgia relating to the pieces of what went on down there that are pretty graphically portrayed in the tape recording and other info. Don Ayer, thanks so much. Really appreciate your time. Coming up next, Biden's grand plan to forgive student loans. Do you need to sign up or is the relief going to be automatic? CNN will answer your questions for you. Plus, nuclear fears amplified with Russian trucks possibly packed with explosives sitting inside a a nuclear power plant, a Ukrainian nuclear power plant. And Uvalde community members say they're not done after the firing of a police chief. What's next in the name of accountability after the killings of 19 students and their two teachers. Stay with us. Topping our money lead, when can I get my student loan debt relief? That's what millions of Americans are asking today, even as the debate grows over whether President Biden's forgiveness plan is is fair, if it goes too far, or if it doesn't go far enough. Some argue that the proposal is transformative and will improve the lives of tens of millions of Americans. Others say it's socialism and will drive up inflation. Everyone has an opinion about President Biden's plan to forgive up to $20,000 in student loan debt. I'm really excited. It's going to cut my loan almost in half. It means nothing. The amount that they're trying to forgive is just not going to go far enough. It's just tough to to swing that in this era we're in right now where everything, all costs are going up and all of a sudden you have people who are you know, get a bunch of debt forgiven and other people have other types of debt and those aren't being forgiven. So it's just, it's just tough to swallow. Let's bring in CNN's Rahel Solomon and Phil Mattingly. Phil, let me start with you. Republicans obviously slamming this plan. Some Democrats even say it misses the mark. Um, do you think there's any scenario in which the pushback forces Biden to change or even reverse this plan? I really don't, Jake. In talking to White House officials, they have made clear this is the proposal. It's moving forward. They expect legal challenges at some point, but the president is all in behind this proposal. The biggest issue the White House has right now is kind of this Goldilocks principle, not really making anybody happy, but they feel like it will have a very tangible benefit for tens of millions of people, and perhaps it will energize a base that has been frustrated to some degree on this issue. One thing is very clear, however, some of their key frontline Senate races, the Democrats in those races are not happy with it. Senator Michael Bennett, Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, Congressman Tim Ryan, who's running for Senate in Ohio, all of whom panned this proposal, said it should have been paid for. There were definitely different routes the administration could have taken. They chose this one. They knew not everybody was going to be happy. The president alluded to it. Now they're going to have to continue to push for it now that it's out the door, Jake. Yeah, we'll ask Senator Elizabeth Warren about those Democrats' opposition uh, coming up. Rahel, break it down for us. Who's eligible for this, and how do people sign up? Well, Jake, chances are if you have a federal student loan, you are eligible, right? By some accounts, 45 million Americans have federal student loans, and the White House says 43 million will receive some sort of relief from this program. 20 million will have their debt wiped. The big question first, of course, is how much you make. There is a cap of $125,000 per person or $250,000 per couple. If that is your situation, well, you could have up to $10,000 canceled. If you were a Pell Grant recipient and also have a federal student loan, you could get up to $20,000 canceled. The big question and the big thing here, Jake, is that uh, this just doesn't automatically happen. You will actually have to 
to apply. That application and that portal hasn't been uh, unveiled yet, but we'll put on the screen where you can go to actually sign up to be notified when that application and when that portal is launched. I'm told within a few weeks. So you sign up there. That website is ed.gov front slash subscriptions. But look, 8 million people, the federal government says they do have their income information. So that will automatically be erased when that happens. But by and large, most people will have to apply on that website. This is a huge program. It's going to take some time to get this off the ground, which the White House says is part of the reason they've extended the moratorium. All right, Rahel Solomon, Phil Manningly, thanks to both of you. Coming up next, what we're hearing now from the Pentagon about strikes in Syria and three U.S. service members who were wounded. Stay with us. In our world lead today, the Pentagon confirms three U.S. service members have been wounded in rocket attacks in Syria. Defense officials blaming fighters backed by Iran for the attack. The U.S. responding with a strike of its own, destroying vehicles and rocket launchers and releasing video proof. CNN's Oren Lieberman is at the Pentagon for us. Oren, this rocket attack comes after a series of recent incidents involving U.S. service members in northern Syria. Jake, this has all moved very quickly over the course of the past 24, 48 hours. First, let me show you a map here so you have a better sense of where in Syria we're talking about. There's the Atanf garrison that you see there, Green Village and Conoco, and that's where all of this has focused, so in eastern northeast Syria there. It begins about a week and a half ago on August 15th when there is a drone attack and a rocket attack on two of those facilities. The U.S. carries out its response earlier this week, striking a series of bunkers, and that's the attack video you saw there from U.S. Central Command a short while ago, carrying out those uh, strikes against bunkers used by Iranian-backed militias. Within 24 hours, a series of rockets are launched at two U.S. bases, or bases used by U.S. troops, Conoco and Green Village. At Conoco, the military says three troops suffered minor injuries. One has returned to duty, the other two remain under evaluation. The U.S., in response, carries out strikes on vehicles and rocket launchers, as well as follow-on strikes against more launchers uh, earlier this morning. So this has all escalated very quickly. The Pentagon says their assessment is that four Iranian-backed militants were killed in the U.S. strikes, but for now, and that's a key part of this, for now, the assessment is that a U.S. official says the U.S. has established or re-established deterrence for now. Or in the timing of all this, it's interesting, these Iranian-backed fighters, militiamen, or they're targeting U.S. troops right at the same time that the U.S. and Western allies are trying to negotiate reviving a nuclear deal with Iran. Um, is that a factor in how service members from the U.S. respond to these attacks? So the U.S., the administration, have tried to make it clear it views these as two separate issues. There is the question of negotiations around the nuclear deal, and it will deal with that separately from what's happening in Syria, dealing with each essentially on by its own standards. But the Pentagon has also made clear that it views Iran as responsible for these attacks on U.S. troops, and that it will attack and it will respond in what it calls proportional and deliberate responses if Iran attacks U.S. forces in the region and the U.S. presence there. So a stern statement coming today from the Pentagon. Orrin Lieberman of the Pentagon for us. Thanks so much. Also in our world lead, the death toll from Russia's attack on a train station in Ukraine has risen to 25 including two children. That's according to Ukrainian officials. While Russia's defense ministry is claiming to have killed more than 200 Ukrainian soldiers in the same attack, CNN cannot independently verify Russia's claim. Meanwhile, the power line to the Russian-controlled nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia, Ukraine, has been cut off twice today because of nearby fires. It was later restored, but all of the reactors at the plant remain disconnected from the power grid now. CNN's Sam Kiley has more 
on a region on edge amid fears of a potential nuclear incident. A fireman tests for radioactive fallout. It's an essential ritual repeated several times a day. It's safe for now. But the war and the shelling that puts this city on the front line of a potential nuclear disaster continues. The pattern over the last month has been that this city has been hit mostly at night, uh, but in the last week, the locals are telling us that there's been regular attacks during the daytime, more or less at exactly this time of day, around about three o'clock. While communications are re-established, an officer explains where the shelling is coming from, pointing to three locations close to a Ukrainian nuclear power station captured by Russia in March. And now Ukraine's top nuclear official is raising fears that Russian trucks, which have been parked inside the plant's turbine hall, could be laden with explosives or cause an accidental fire. And if it happens, uh, then there will be a major fire in a turbine hall. And after that, uh, it can actually impact the reactor building. Essentially, are you saying that that risks a meltdown of the reactor? Uh, yes, could be, because, you know, you cannot stop this fire if it goes. There's been a renewed exodus of civilians living under Russian occupation in the towns close to Europe's biggest nuclear power plant. Safely in Ukrainian-held Zaporizhia, they consistently told CNN that Russian troops were bombarding locations close to the plant, shelling that Russia blames on Ukraine. The internet is switched off before it starts, probably so that nobody can film it. But we already know that if the internet is down, we should expect Russian shelling in half an hour. Amid international demands that Russia leave the nuclear power plant and demilitarize the area, the Russian shelling from the power station has increased. This is the result of one of 70 artillery and rocket strikes here in the last 24 hours, officials said. There's shelling every day, every day it just happened to hit here. Good thing no one was at home, or there would have been casualties, she says. Russia's responded to international demands to demilitarize the power plant by adding troops, inevitably increasing the chances of a disaster, whether by accident or design. Now, one of the designs that uh, Russia has on the nuclear power station, Jake, according to Ukrainian officials, could be rerouting the, its product, the electricity it generates, into the Russian system, the Russian-controlled system. To do that, they would have to change its frequency, and that would require a shutdown of the nuclear power station. And that may explain, it's speculation, but it could explain why these six reactors are currently offline. They're still generating electricity, but it's not going anywhere at the moment, certainly not into the Ukrainian grid, according to the IAEA. Jake? All right, Sam Kiley in Kiev, Ukraine. Thanks so much. Coming up next, the new busloads of migrants arriving along the East Coast, as Democrats accuse Republicans of using these individuals as political pawns. Stay with us. International lead Democrats are accusing Republican governors of using human beings as pawns in a cynical political game. New York City officials say a record-breaking 237 migrants were bussed into that city on Wednesday. These are migrants who reached the U.S. border, many of them seeking asylum, then were put on buses by Texas officials and sent away on the orders of Republican Governor Greg Abbott. This has 
Been going on for weeks, Arizona Republican Governor Doug Ducey has been busing migrants to Washington, D.C. CNN's Polo Sandoval joins us now from New York. And, and Polo, one of the, I don't know if it's an irony, but one of the odd things here is that these Republican governors are actually making it much easier for these migrants to have their asylum requests approved by the more liberal judges in New York and Washington, D.C. There certainly is a bit of irony to this story here, Jake, because you do have this announcement that was made by Texas Governor Greg Abbott really months ago to begin busing these migrants. And we have to remind viewers have crossed the border, have turned themselves into federal officials, have been processed and released and are free to travel throughout the United States as long as they continue to adhere to their next court date. Well, many of these families that I've spoken to on the southern border in years past, they usually have to save up as much as they can to buy their own plane or bus ticket north. In this case, though, you do have, and in this particular case, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, that is offering these free rides here to Manhattan. And tomorrow will mark three weeks since we began to see that first border bus pull into into New York, the first buses that pulled into Washington, D.C., that was back in April. But as for New York here, anywhere you look at it, whether it's, uh, it's political theater that critics uh, argue is, is happening, or as the governors of Texas and Arizona are saying, is meant to provide some relief to border communities, the result is an added strain and really stretching the capacity of many of the, uh, of many of the, much of the infrastructure here. As you're about to hear from the Immigration Affairs Commissioner, Manuel Castro, uh, he has recognized that more needs to to be done to make sure that these migrants, now thousands that have arrived here in New York City alone, have that opportunity to receive shelter. We need to support them. We need to we need to find a way to to make sure that we feel proud of our welcoming and how we're receiving these asylum seekers. Over 7,000 asylum seekers here in New York City, Jake, they've already turned to the shelter system. It's why city officials are not only expanding capacity, but also asking that some of those shelters, they are aware uh, that these migrants that have nowhere else to go with very few to no ties to the U.S. are actually admitted into these shelters until they can finally find a place of their own and find out exactly what happens to their asylum cases. Jake? Beyond the shelters, how are the big cities coping with this influx? Departments of Education really throughout the country are also preparing to receive the children of these asylum seekers. Here in New York alone, the Department of Education announced their plans to enroll up to a thousand children this coming fall semester. The chancellor of the Department of Education insists that they do have plenty of room. It's more about those resources, making sure that they have the bilingual faculty on hand. So that's one of the ways that cities like New York are preparing to deal with these numbers as they continue to add up. Polo Sandoval in New York City for us. Thanks so much. Also in today's national lead, the school board in Uvalde, Texas, voted unanimously to fire school district police chief Pete Arundondo. The decision came during an emotional meeting last night. Arundondo, as you remember, has come under intense public scrutiny over the law enforcement response or lack thereof during that horrific mass shooting at Robb Elementary School in May. Officers waited more than an hour, as you recall, before confronting the attacker inside a classroom and 19 children and two teachers were killed. Listen to what one young girl who lost friends during that massacre said to officers during last night's meeting. I have messages for PR and all the law enforcement that were there that day. Turn in your badge and step down. You don't deserve to wear one. So what is next in the push for accountability? Texas State Representative Joe Moody joins us now. He's a Democrat. He's the vice chair of the Texas House Committee investigating the Robb Elementary School shooting. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Your committee released a preliminary report last month describing a, quote, 
overall lackadaisical approach by authorities on the scene. But you also said in that report that your work was not complete. You're still looking to talk to more witnesses and review more evidence. Where does your investigation stand as of now? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, the there's a number of interviews we have con- our, our committee has continued to uh, conduct through our investigators. Uh, when we met with the families prior to the release of the report, there were several families that wanted to meet with and be interviewed. And, and prior to that, you know, some of them maybe were not ready to do that. So those interviews have been ongoing. Uh, there are also some other pieces of evidence. You know, we don't have final medical examiner's reports yet. Uh, those are things that we don't have at our disposal because they're not complete. Uh, and certainly the, the, medical, uh, the medical evidence is something that will allow us to, to better understand what that delay meant in terms of lives lost. Uh, so that's what we're working on. The speaker's given us this task to, to work on it. And we have up until January to deliver uh, any more information to the, to the public and to the legislature. In the preliminary report, your committee writes, quote, there is no one to whom we can attribute malice or ill motives in terms of the response. Instead, we found systemic failures and egregious poor decision making, unquote. Uh, As you know, a lot of people in Uvalde blame these officers and describe them as cowardly. Does cowardice count as malice or ill motives? Look, our task wasn't to get to get into um, people's motivations. I, I don't think any one of those officers would want something horrific happening. But the fact of the matter is law enforcement is a profession in which we have to hold people to a very high standard. Big mistakes are not acceptable. Uh, Pete Arredondo did not do the job he needed to do that day. And certainly several other officers fall in that category as well. I think what the, the report allowed to go forward was uh, these investigations, these accountability, um, is, you know, the seeking of accountability. DPS is doing a, a review of their troopers. The police department in Uvalde is doing the same. So I don't, I don't think this is the end of that conversation around accountability. Parents who lost their children that day say that the, the firing uh, of the chief was a good first step, but they have so many unanswered questions about the police response that day and why more wasn't done, why officers didn't charge the shooter, as we know, is common police procedure ever since Columbine in 1999. Are those families ever going to get the answers they so desperately are asking? Well, I mean, I think that that what we laid out in the report was the abject failure to apply those trainings, to apply those principles. Um, you know, they had a plan. The district had a plan in place to address an active shooter, and they didn't follow that plan. Um, you know, and that's where we have to go from. We have to take that base of facts, and now we need to start holding people accountable. School district did their part of that. Uh, it's incumbent upon all the other agencies that were part of that response to do their review uh, and make sure that we hold the you know, hold people accountable and make sure if you if you failed in this task and this you know because there were hundreds of officers that never stepped foot inside the hallway, so we're going to look at them differently. There were some officers that were there particularly to provide medical care, and so you look at them differently. But there are those that were in positions of decision-making authority or close enough to be able to implement those trainings that didn't. And, and, and that's where, uh, you know, I agree. This is a good first start, and the accountability doesn't did not end last night. Texas State Representative Joe Moody, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Out west, tapping out California's charge to get rid of cars that run on gas and make a hard t- turn toward electric. Stay with us. 
In our money lead, California is taking an ambitious, perhaps even radical step to reduce emissions and combat the climate crisis. State air regulators just voted to approve a plan that would ban the sale of new gasoline-powered cars in California by 2035. The proposal would not impact any cars that were used before then. CNN's Chris Wynn is in Los Angeles. Chris, explain what we can expect from this policy. That's right, Jake. That ban was passed just moments ago unanimously by the California Air Resources Board. Uh, Given the size of California's economy, uh, this decision is going to have a major impact, major implications on the U.S. car market. Here in California, each year, nearly two million vehicles are sold, two million new vehicles. That's why this decision is such a big deal. This vote was years in the making. It will encourage more people to consider buying an electric vehicle. Here's what a transportation expert had to say about the significance of the decision. This is a historic moment. And by having a clear fixed target when we stop selling gas and diesel vehicles, we are going to be making a really important um, dent in our need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. However, this isn't going to happen overnight. Officials have drafted up some benchmarks for the state to meet. For example, the goal is to have 35 percent of new vehicles to be zero emission by the year 2026. The target numbers then go up each year until that 100 percent mark in 2035. Now, earlier we spoke with the California New Car Dealers Association. They say they're all in on electric vehicles. However, the president uh, of that association did express some concerns over the affordability of these vehicles moving forward. Jake? And Chris, how is this going to be enforced? Great question. Uh, We know that this ban will add some teeth to Governor Gavin Newsom's executive order from two years ago uh, mandating that gasoline-powered vehicles be phased out by 2035. As for enforcement, uh, we expect civil penalties to be assessed on car dealerships that do not comply with the new rules. Jake? All right, Chris Wynn in Los Angeles, thanks so much. President Biden coming off vacation to push his huge economic accomplishments, but are Democrats overselling it? I'll press the issue next when I speak with Senator Elizabeth Warren. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, multiple hazing allegations impacting several high school football teams, all in Pennsylvania. And now one high school, one, now one high school near Harrisburg is canceling the entire football season before it even kicks off. Plus, a look at the new laws going into effect in three states that make it even more difficult if not impossible, for more than 10 million women to get access to abortions, even in cases of severe risk to their health or rape or incest. And leading this hour, any moment between now and noon tomorrow, we could see the actual affidavit from the Mar-a-Lago search. The version of the document will include redactions proposed by the Justice Department. Remember, the affidavit outlines why prosecutors felt they needed to conduct an unprecedented search of Donald Trump's home and what they believe was probable cause that crimes had been committed. Let's get straight to CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Perez. Evan, what did U.S. Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt say about his decision to release this redacted version of the affidavit? 
Well, Jake, uh, the judge uh, ruled very, very quickly right after the Justice Department had f had filed its uh, its its heavily what we assume is going to be a very heavily redacted version of this affidavit. He said he was satisfied that this was the least on onerous uh, alternative to sealing the entire uh, affidavit. I'll read you a another part of his ruling. It says, "I find that the government has met its burden of showing a compelling reason, good cause, to seal portions of the affidavit because the disclosure." would reveal the identity, identities of witnesses, law enforcement agents, and uncharged parties. The investigation strategy, direction, scope, sources, and methods, and grand jury information that is protected by the federal rule of criminal procedure. The judge, obviously, uh, Jake was very, very familiar with this document. It is, after, after all, the document that he based his decision to approve this unprecedented search and seizure at the president's home, the former president's home. But clearly, he was leaning in, in favor of releasing something. And so now we wait to see what the Justice Department will do. They can, of course, uh, often, as you know, Jake, they often wait. Uh, if they have a noon deadline, they'll release it at 11.59.59. We'll hope uh, to see uh, whether that, that happens earlier than then. All right, Evan Perez, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Turning to our money lead now, there is some good news on the economic front. New numbers show that the U.S. economy shrank less than previously estimated, leading most economists to throw cold water on the notion that the U.S. is actually headed towards a recession. But, of course, inflation remains at an all-time high. Let's go to CNN senior White House correspondent Phil Mattingly. He's in Rockville, Maryland, where President Biden is participating in a reception for the Democratic National Committee. Uh, Phil, Democrats are trying to ramp up support and energy ahead of the final stretch to the midterms. Uh, President Biden is expected to make a significant political speech tonight. That's how they're billing it. Do you know what he's expected to address? Jake, in case you can't tell from the Bowie High School band behind me, it's officially campaign season for the president and his team. They've been talking about getting on the road for several weeks now. This will be really the launch of the midterm campaign season, and that includes a very clear and deliberate speech on the issue of contrast. The president making clear that while he understands the wind is not necessarily a Democratic backs going into a midterm election, the first midterm of a new president, that they have real things that they can campaign on. They can campaign on legislative results over the course of the last several weeks. They can campaign against Republicans that they feel like are against most of the things perhaps Democratic voters want to pay attention to. More than anything else, Jake, over the course of the last several weeks, there have been very clear signals that the Supreme Court's decision on Roe versus Wade is boosting Democratic fortunes. You've seen it in multiple special elections. You saw it down in Kansas uh, on a referendum vote. The White House likely uh, says the president is going to be talking about that as well. This is not uh, really a battleground area. This is the Rockville, D.C. suburbs uh, out in Maryland. Wes Moore, the governor candidate, Democratic candidate, will be here. The president really kind of giving a test run tonight of what we're going to hear from him the next several months. Phil, um, an updated report on the GDP today showed that, yes, the economy shrank in the second quarter, but less than originally thought. Uh, and now people are throwing cold water on the idea that we're headed towards a recession. Are Democrats starting to feel more optimistic about the direction of the economy? I think Democrats, when I talk to them both in the White House and on Capitol Hill, feel like they have a story to tell. And it's not just a story about inflation. There is clear acknowledgement from the president's team and his top economic advisors that inflation is still high, is still at four decades high, and is still the foremost concern on voters' minds at this point. But they believe, based on the work they've done, particularly legislatively over the course of the last 18 or 19 months, that the U.S. has recovered much faster than many other economies, much faster certainly than after the Great Recession. And they have that story to tell in this moment as we head into these critical campaign months. That said, the recession is still as high as it is, 
that is going to be very difficult to overcome. You'll hear the president address that tonight, Jake. All right, Phil, we'll let you go uh, enjoy that uh, high school band behind you. Thank you so much. And joining me now to discuss is Massachusetts Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren. Senator, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. So the, the second quarter GDP report shows that the economy did shrink, but less so than originally thought. From April to June this year, the GDP shrank 0.6%, not 0.9%, which a July estimate showed. Unemployment is also very low. Um, but Americans are still facing high prices because of rampant inflation. So how do Democrats campaign on an economy that is such a mixed bag? Well, I think it's about, are we trying to head this thing in the right direction? You know, look, we got a lot of reasons that prices are driven up for families. And we have to worry about high prices for families. But part of it is still COVID that causes shutdowns around the world. We've still got supply chain problems. We still have a war in Ukraine that drives up energy prices. And frankly, we still have giant corporations that are out there that are engaging in price gouging. And all of those keep pushing those prices up. Now, there's a lot of evidence that prices are coming down. Best part is, as you point out, unemployment is low, so paychecks are coming in. But the main part, as I see it, is the Democrats are working to get this economy and keep this economy on track for everybody. Put the Republicans in charge and let them do another $2 trillion tax break for billionaires and giant corporations. When the Democrats are in charge, what we're doing instead is we're trying to make this economy work for everyone. And that's what I think we're doing right now with lower unemployment and with more money back in people's pockets on things like we're going to put a cap on the cost of insulin, mm -hmm. a cap on the cost of prescription drugs for people on Medicare. Um, those are the directions we want to go in. And canceling student loan debt is part of that. Let's talk about Trying that, to help yeah. out working families. Yeah, so President Biden yesterday announced his decision to cancel up to $10,000 of student debt for millions of Americans, up to $20,000 of debt for Pell Grant recipients. Democratic colleagues of yours uh, facing tough re-election races uh, don't seem happy with the decision. Nevada Senator Catherine Cortez Masto said, quote, it doesn't address the root problems. Congressman Jared Golden of Maine said this decision is out of touch. Congressman Tim Ryan of Ohio, he's running for Senate, said this sends the wrong message. Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado said, quote, the administration should have proposed a way to pay for this plan, unquote. Are they wrong? The way I see it is that this is about the President of the United States bringing the full force of our government to help working people. Keep in mind that 42% of the folks who have student loan debt do not have a college diploma. These are folks who tried, but they're folks who you know, went to beauty school. They're folks who may have tried community college and they are not earning enough to cover their student loan debt burdens. The way the president has set this up is to concentrate the help among those who need it most. So by doing the Pell recipients with the largest beneficiaries of this cancellation, it's people whose median, uh, whose income, family incomes for 95% of them is below $60,000. Think about that. These are people who are disproportionate, like working people, they're veterans, they are mamas and daddies who are trying to go back to school, they're first generation people uh, trying to get into college. 
those are the folks that the president is reaching out and trying to help, working people who are struggling. And as Democrats, that's what we ought to be doing. Is this one-time student loan forgiveness just a Band-Aid on, on the real underlying issue here, which is the skyrocketing cost of college tuition? Well, it's, it's part of the problem we're dealing with here, and that is the built-up student loan debt. But the president made another announcement yesterday, and that is how people are going to pay for college going forward. And he's going to change the income-determined repayment plan so that nobody has to go through debt hell to try to get an education if they can't afford to write a check for it. But the third part is absolutely about holding colleges and universities accountable. Um, this is something I've been working on for a very long time. So have other Democrats. We want to see colleges have skin in the game. We've put additional money into historically black colleges and universities. I've got a piece of legislation that has almost made it through that demands more transparency from colleges so that the costs are clearer up front, so that they have to post information about how long it takes people to graduate on average, how many graduate, and how much money they make when they get out. So there are a lot of things we need to do to get the cost of college under control, but it's three different parts that we've got to work on. And I start today by celebrating the part that says for literally 20 million hardworking people, you don't have to pay student loan debt anymore. And for another 23 million, you've got some relief on that debt. And that's gonna be life transformative for a lot of people who now will be able to start a small business, start yeah. a family, save up money to buy a home, good for the economy overall. What, what do you make of the fairness argument that I've heard from Republicans and from Democrats, which is what about all those Americans that paid their debts and took second jobs, third jobs, or decided uh, to not go to the priciest school? Isn't this unfair to them? You know, I think of the fairness argument this way. Um, I went to college, I'm the, my, my daddy uh, was a janitor. I went to college when it cost $50 a semester, when a part-time job would cover the cost of college tuition. It doesn't do that anymore. And that is a real generational fairness problem. That opportunity is just not out there. Or look at it this way. You know what proportion of Harvard undergrads have to borrow money? 2%. Do you know what proportion of state school undergrads have to borrow money? About 50%. And what proportion of uh, HBCU grads have to borrow money in order to make it through college? 80%. Hmm. What's happening right now in America is that it's working great if you're born into a family that's well-to-do, but it's not working great for the rest of the folks. People are out there, they're trying to get an education. These are the folks who are working two jobs in nursing homes. These are folks who are, are air conditioning and repair maintenance, people who are waiting on tables and they can't cover the rent, put food on the table and still manage an average $400 a month to be able to pay student loan debt. Mm -hmm. We need to get that debt burden off their backs. We need to set up an investment in our colleges and universities so they don't cost an arm and a leg. And we need to make sure that no kid in the future 
who can't afford to go to college has to go through debt hell and mortgage their future all the way to the end of their lives in order to try to get an mm -hmm. education. We uh, need to do all of it. Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. As new abortion restrictions go into effect, impacting 10 million women in three states, what is it like providing health care for women at this time in our history? We're talking to a doctor who owns a family planning center where they perform abortions. That's next. International lead access to abortion will become much more difficult for more than 10 million women in the United States this week, women and girls. That's because so-called abortion trigger laws go into an effect in three states today. This comes, of course, after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June. CNN's Tom Foreman joins us now to explain the changes. Tom, what, what states are seeing these changes today? Well, we're focusing now on Idaho, Tennessee, and Texas because they're joining many other states in here that already have restrictions. Look at what Texas is doing there. They're criminalizing performing an abortion from fertilization onward. The only exception is for the life or the health of the mother, and pay attention to that word, health of the mother, and no exception for rape or incest. Texas already had laws. Many of these states already have laws. This is the next phase of what's been kicking in as part of this. Tennessee, very much like Texas, abortion from fertilization banning that exception for life or again health of the mother no exception for rape or incest and then idaho a bit of an outlier in this prohibits all abortions the exception for rape and incest if reported to law enforcement but look at this one the exception for life of mother period not health so if a doctor has a patient that needs an abortion to protect their health no matter how debilitating it may be if it's not going to kill the person, the mother involved, the doctor can't perform it. Jake? Have there been any recent court rulings on any of these trigger laws? Yeah, specifically on Idaho. That's the one that's attracted a lot of attention here because that notion of saying that a doctor cannot take care of the mother in there at that moment, if that, that's all they're concerned about instead of death itself, that conflicts with federal law. Federal law says that that doctor must take care of the patient. So the Biden administration stepped in and said, you have a clear conflict here. A federal judge looked at it and said, yeah, the state law, the federal judge collide with each other. That part of the state law has to be put on hold here. See if the state wants to challenge it and move forward. Also in Texas, kind of the reverse in Texas in that there, Texas has the provision there pretending to the health of the mother but it was considered so narrow that the Biden administration stepped in and said, no, 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 you have to do it for all these conditions. And the court said, no, it's OK if it's narrow as long as it's there. Tom, there are other trigger laws taking effect this week as well, right? Yeah, it's, it's still moving steadily on. North Dakota is going to jump in near total ban on all abortions. Abortion, a felony. The exceptions for the life of the mother, rape and incest there. It's been delayed waiting for a judge's decision on whether or not it will be blocked. And Oklahoma is jumping in as well. They've got a uh, felony to perform an abortion, face up to 10 years in prison, a $100,000 fine, and it now has the nation's strictest abortion law. But this is a, this is a contest, for, contest for the most strict law that's still running, Jake. Bottom line, many red states out there are steadily improving upon or making more severe would be a way to describe it their laws against abortion and stepping up their penalties for anyone who tries in any way shape or form to get around it jake tom foreman thanks so much joining us now to discuss dr deshaun taylor 
She's the owner of a family planning center in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, doctor, thanks for joining us. Uh, you just heard Tom Foreman explain the five states where abortion uh, trigger laws are going into effect this week. You're a doctor in Arizona, uh, which has a pre-Roe v. Wade abortion ban on the books, though a judge is not set to rule on whether that ban still stands until later in September. So you're kind of in limbo there. How is it affecting you and your practice right now? Well, thank you for the opportunity to shed some light on what's going on here in Arizona. It has been exhausting, frustrating, an emotional roller coaster to be on as not only someone who is a provider of abortion care, but also someone who owns an abortion clinic in this state. Uh, I did not go to medical school to keep track of this legal um, activity that we need to be intimately involved with to be able to proceed safely and provide an abortion care for the people who need it in our state. Has the back and forth been confusing to you as a healthcare provider, what you're allowed to do? So initially, um, the majority of us, including myself, uh, providers in Arizona, did pause when the initial Roe v. Wade decision came down because we wanted our state leaders to give us some clarity because there's multiple conflicting laws on the book here in Arizona. Um, And many of them carry criminal penalties, felony, uh, mandatory jail time, et cetera. And so it took some time and actually it took court action for things to become a lot more clear that the pre-roll ban is currently not in effect here in Arizona and that the judge will be ruling on that later in September. So with that understanding there, that still isn't enough for the majority of providers in Arizona to move forward. Um, But each of us have our own risk calculus and decisions to make around this. And so for me, I think that um, the law is clearly on my side that I can proceed safely and provide an abortion care. But the fear and confusion that has been sown all of this time since the decision has definitely made it difficult um, to keep the clinic staffed up and for people who care about the patients who are seeking abortion care as well. There is a great amount of fear in the community. So several abortion clinics in Arizona have have stopped performing abortions. If ultimately that's what the judge decides will happen in September, that abortion is illegal in Arizona, tell us what that means uh, on a practical level uh, for girls and women in Arizona. On a practical level, people with means would be able to leave the state to go to neighboring states to to receive abortion care. And that is what we're seeing all over the country. Um, But the people who don't have means, which is means in terms of finances, means in terms of transportation, means in terms of time off work, means in in terms of feeling safe to move across borders, um, those people will have a difficult time accessing abortion care. They may decide to self-manage their abortions, which is definitely safer in 2022 than it was prior to 1973. However, you know, there are people who do want assistance from a healthcare provider, and they do want to have a medical partner in in their pregnancy. And quite honestly, people deserve to be able to access healthcare where they live. 
and not have to jump through all of the hoops that, first of all, were already required prior to Roe v. Wade and have definitely worsened since the decision. We saw in Kansas a massive voter turnout from women, including Republican women, to vote no on an amendment that that would have allowed the legislature to take away uh, rights to an abortion. Not, Not every state is putting the question of abortion to voters. Uh, Many of them are letting trigger laws take effect or the governors or legislatures are doing uh, doing it uh, that way legislatively. What can people do if they're unhappy with the abortion laws taking place in their state? What do you what do you tell your patients uh, who are upset about uh, the new normal? I really hope that this outrage does translate to more people going to the polls during a midterm election season. Um, What I found since I've been here in Arizona is that a lot of these extreme politicians stay in office in the midterm elections because people don't come out. So the only way that we are going to be able to expand access to care as opposed to continually having it chipped away at is we have to have new leadership. We have to have people running our state who are in line with the ideals of nine in 10 Arizonans who believe that abortion should be legal in our state. And so the only way to really turn this around is to vote and vote in champions for the people. We, in the meantime, will be doing a great deal of um, community organizing and mutual aid to mitigate the harms caused by these laws. But ultimately, we need wide policy change at the state level so that we can be protected by ebbs and flows that happen at the federal level, like we've seen with this unprecedented overturn of Roe v. Wade at the Supreme Court. And so we have to demand that the people who represent us and run this state are actually representing our interests. Dr. Deshaun Taylor, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Coming up, she called proposed changes to voting laws. Her state's 9-11? And now she's one step away from being in charge of all elections in that state. That's next. In our politics lead, CNN's K-File team has uncovered shocking and previously unreported comments from the Republican nominee to be the top elections official in Minnesota. Attorney Kim Crockett likened changing the rules around voting during the pandemic in 2020 to the September 11th terrorist attacks. We realize people are discouraged. And this is this is still an exceptional nation. We are still the American people, and and I'm I'm betting on us. Um, this is a challenge. Maybe we needed a wake up call. This is our 9/11. Crockett has a history of comments criticized as anti-Semitic and racist. Her campaign promoted a video featuring Jewish Democratic donor George Soros, a frequent target of far right conspiracies, as a puppet master controlling two. Jewish Democrats. The Minnesota GOP claims that Crockett and her staff were not aware of the anti-Semitic tropes. And in 2020, she also made this comment about then-president-elect Joe Biden. They're just going to put a pillow over his face when they get tired of it. So when I was... Don't put a pillow over Biden's face. Oh, go quietly, Joe. In a statement to CNN, Crockett's campaign responded saying, quote, there are so many important policy issues we should be discussing right now so that Minnesotans can make an informed choice when they vote. Instead, most of the media is intent on character assassination. That's what we call 
quoting people, character assassination. Let's talk uh, with our panel right now. Tia, let me start with you. Uh, Minnesota is hardly the only state that, uh, in, in which a Republican nominee uh, is something of an extremist. Uh, in at least 11 states, a Republican nominee uh, for Secretary of State is someone who has questioned, rejected, or tried to overturn the results of the 2020 election. That's just on the election lie. Forget the anti-Semitism and the, and the racism. Um, what's going on? Well, what's going on is that um, far-right Americans, MAGA Americans, followers of President Donald Trump, want to influence our election system. And it, you know, these people who will be elected in 2022 will have great control over the next presidential election in 2024. And the concern is that if people are coming in with an agenda that is not free and fair elections, which is to undermine and question the outcome of elections, but they're also in charge, you know, it could be chaos in 2024. It really could. We're seeing so many, not just the, it's just where they're coming from is, doesn't seem to be about democracy, fairness, equal representation, equal voice for all. And that should be concerning. What do you, what's your take? Uh, first of all, 9-11 is our 9-11. Right. Uh, I mean, it's, these comments are not the comments of a serious person. And um, a Republican nominee for secretary of state. I know. And 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 look, I think you could actually, you know, responsibly construct an argument saying something like, well, I don't agree that all the voting rules were changed in 2020 and that, you know, we changed the rules and that affected the electorate. I, perfect policy debates. Or I don't agree that that we should federalize all elections because that's what Republican find policy debate. But when you start referring to things as uh our 9-11, I mean, this just dips into the, to the non-serious. It's a dead end. This is a total dead end for the Republican Party. Be a serious person. You can have policy views. You can have ideas about the way elections should be run. You cannot be this sort of unserious, nonsensical garbage. It's not good for you, not good for the party. Yeah, the issue, though, is, as you said, Jake, She's not the only candidate that is right. Saying there are tons this. of them. Jim Marshawn in uh, Nevada, who's the nominee now for the Secretary of State, he has also made anti-Semitic comments and launched his campaign at a QAnon rally. Uh, and he also is someone who is an election denier. This is something that has been happening again and again with the candidates. And when I was in Wyoming ahead of Cheney's uh, Cheney's lost primary to also another candidate who decided to go along with Trump's election lies. And I was talking to these Republican voters. It just became so clear how many of them believe the lie, very much to their core. And when you attempt to present evidence, uh, which is that there is no evidence and Republican leaders of these states who ran multiple audits found no widespread fraud, they don't believe it because ultimately it comes down to what Former President Trump said what a lot of the other Republicans in their state are saying, which is that there was fraud, you know, and they're continuing this lie, and that has an effect on the electorate. You know what it reminds me of, um, speaking of 9-11, it reminds me, after 9-11, there was this whole 9-11 truther nonsense, where people were saying that George W. Bush, and I'm getting, this is insane, I'm not, right. I'm not su- suggesting any, there's any reality, but George W. Bush knew, George, you know, the, they were in on it, whatever, um, and th- this mainly was on the left, and Democrats did a pretty good job of drumming it out. I mean, Cynthia McKinney was a congresswoman who right. said this kind of nonsense, and you know, Democrats ran an opponent against her in the primary. 
here we have the party just like acquiescing. And by the way, Marjorie Taylor Greene said that, uh, who's a Republican congresswoman who's part with, of all this nonsense, said that, uh, you know, a plane didn't crash into the Pentagon, which is, of course, not true. Yeah, I, I lost friends on that plane that yeah. crashed into the Pentagon. Uh, and the animals who committed that terrorism were foreign terrorists, and they were fueled by hate and lies. On January 6th, domestic terrorists attacked our capital, something that the heroes of Flight 93 did not allow to happen on 9-11. But on January 6th, they did. They were domestic terrorists, also fueled by hate and lies. And, you know, uh, 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 this matters. What leaders say matters. Ms. Crockett also called the election in Minnesota lawless, her word. She went to the University of Pennsylvania Law School. She should know. It, I'm so, sure they appreciate that. that yeah, I'm sorry to plug <laughs> Penn, but, you know, maybe she couldn't get into University of Texas. But uh, my, my hero, Willie Nelson, has a new song out. One of the things he says is, energy leads to thought. So be careful what you think. Right? And, and his point is that these words lead to things. They lead to consequences. Yeah. And, and we saw the consequences on January 6th. And it's hateful and it's, frankly, unpatriotic and American to tell Americans that their country doesn't work, that it's not free, because we are free. It's, it's, and it is in Michigan, in Arizona, in Nevada, uh, in eight other states. The governor in Pennsylvania, because you don't elect a secretary of state in right. Pennsylvania, the governor appoints the secretary of state. Let's turn to a subject I'm sure Scott's more comfortable talking about, the, <laughs> the criticism of uh, President Biden over the student loan <laughs> uh, debt relief uh, plan. A lot of, a lot of Republicans uh, are calling this uh, socialism, saying it's not fair. What's your take? Well, that's certainly right. I mean, the Republicans are incensed over this. Uh, they think it's illegal. Uh, they think it's unconstitutional. They think it's unfair. They think it's immoral. They think it's irrational. They think it's uh, basically pitting Americans against each other. That's going to create resentment. And for a guy who ran on a part on a platform of I'm going to bring Americans together and we're going to have unity, um, I, I think the amount of resentment that it's going to breed in the country uh, for people who get this and people who don't is a real thing. And so. Uh, Republicans are pretty bent out of shape about it, uh, and it's a, all, across all wings of the Republican Party. What are you hearing from voters in Georgia? I think, you know, of course, there's a partisan divide, just like with so many other things in America. So on the right, for the most part, there's a lot of criticism and concern, which, you know, we should have some caveats there. America picks winners and losers with its incentives and tax cuts and Um, so many other things. So student loan forgiveness is just one of the myriad kind of policies in America where some people get it and some people don't. Democratic side, of course, I think there are a lot of people who are appreciative and they realize that at least Democrats are doing something. They might not like it. They want more. A lot of Democrats want more. They want more student loan forgiveness. They want the cost of higher education to go down. They want uh, deferment on payments that will still exist for a lot of people. So Democrats aren't necessarily satisfied, but they're like, at least Biden is doing something. Mm -hmm. And and Laura, I just want to, so Democrats are are calling Republicans hypocrites on this issue and on the issue of picking winners. um, uh, Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips uh, tweeted out a list of Republicans that got PPP loans in 2020 during the height of the pandemic, um, billions of dollars in loans were given out and later forgiven. Um, and, and some of the members of Congress uh, who had businesses or have businesses that, that benefited from that include Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Greg Pence, um, all of whom uh, Minnesota Democratic Congressman Dean Phillips uh, said, you know, uh, benefited uh, from tens of thousands of dollars in loan forgiveness. Is it a fair comparison, do you think? 
I think that um, Democrats think it's fair. I mean, you know, it is a little bit of hypocritical for Marjorie Taylor Greene to be talking about loans given out to students when she also benefited from a, a you know, loan that was paid for, uh, as well as the other, these other lawmakers. But uh, w- another piece of this argument is, uh, I think, and an important piece is also moving forward. You know, one of the arguments that Republicans and a number of Democrats, some Democrats have made against the, uh, the decision by Biden was about, oh, well, does this create a slippery slope? Does this mean that students in the future are going to start to expect uh, loan forgiveness over and over again? Does this cause tuition to go up? Um, The response to that from the White House, as well as economists that are on the side of the White House, is that actually uh, this addresses future payments because it makes it so you don't have to pay interest on loans in the future. So that's something for future students, which Mm -hmm. is you don't have to pay interest on it, as well as the fact that it addresses um, the income and makes it so only 5% of your income is what ultimately, discretionary income is what ultimately has to be repaid, not 10%. Quickly, if you could, is is it fair to go after Republicans for taking (laughs) PPP loans? Well, yes, hypocrisy is is a massive problem that they have. If you supported Donald Trump, who declared bankruptcy six times, if you supported Mr. Trump's tax cuts, which gave $2.3 trillion to Wall Street and corporate welfare, and especially if you got a PPP loan. I have to say, I don't like this issue. I don't like the debt forgiveness Biden is doing. I disagree with him on this. I think it's bad policy mm. and bad politics, but the hypocrisy coming from the Republicans is really rich. Thanks to one and all. Coming up, guilty pleas in the stealing and selling of a diary that belonged to President Biden's daughter during the 2020 campaign. Stay with us. Internationally, two people pleaded guilty today to stealing and selling the belongings of Ashley Biden, President Biden's daughter. The Justice Department says Amy Harris and Robert Curlander admitted to trying to sell the materials first to the Trump campaign, eventually selling them to the conservative group Project Veritas in the months before the 2020 election. CNN's Bryn Gingras joins us now live. Bryn, uh, how did the pair get access to Ashley Biden's belongings? Yeah, so Jake, so Harris was living in an apartment where Ashley Biden once resided. It seems that they had a mutual friend. Ashley Biden left that apartment, asked her friend, can I keep some stuff here? Can I store it here? And Harris essentially took full advantage of that. According to the court documents, uh, the things that she had her hands on was a journal with highly personal entries, tax records, a digital camera with a bunch of family photos on it, a cell phone, among many things. Now, what the DOJ said they did and what they pleaded guilty to was essentially taking those things and, like you said, Jake, first trying to go to the Trump campaign and saying, hey, we have Ashley Biden's personal stuff. Do you want it? And according to the court documents, the Trump campaign essentially says we can't use it. Go to the FBI with that. Uh, and it just ha- and they said, we, well, it has to be done a different way. We need to make money off of this. So that's when days later, according to these documents, they went to the conservative group Project Veritas. And there are Tons of text message exchanges in these court documents, which explain their plan, essentially approaching the conservative group, meeting up with them, exchanging some of these personal items, actually being asked to go back to this Florida home, getting more stuff to give to this group, basically making $40,000 off the sale of this personal property of Ashley Biden. So both of these guys, Ashley or Amy Harris, rather, and Robert Curlander, they pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit interstate transportation of stolen property 
Uh, our understanding is a maximum of five years in federal prison, but a judge is going to sentence them at a later date. They apologized. Uh, Curlander actually says he will be um, p- cooperating with the government as well in the future. And what about the, the role of Project Veritas here? Did they release any of the information from Ashley Biden's uh, possessions. Yeah, so Project Veritas did not release any of this information, uh, and they do say the way that they obtained it was completely up to their standards, completely ethical. As I said, though, Curlander has said that he will cooperate with the government as part of his plea deal. It's unclear what that cooperation means. Is the government looking into Project Veritas further with this incident? So we're not quite sure about that, but certainly that's a possibility. I will say in this DOJ paperwork, uh, it does say that this couple knew Project Veritas was still sketchy in the way they conduct business and yet still decided to move forward with the transaction, Jake. All right, Brent Jengrass, thanks so much. Three school districts, three separate hazing investigations, all of them in Pennsylvania. Now one of the schools is canceling their entire football season as a result. That's next. In our sports lead, one Pennsylvania high school is canceling its entire football season because of reports of hazing. Two other Pennsylvania high schools are investigating hazing allegations tied to their football team. CNN's Erica Hill joins us now. Erica, walk us through what what happened at the school where the entire season has been canceled. So first we start on August 11th. So this happened at the uh, Middletown Area High School. This is about 10 miles from Harrisburg, from the capital. And what happened is the district became aware of an alleged hazing incident, as you see there, that was captured on video on August 11th at practice. So the players who were allegedly involved were removed from the team pending an investigation. That investigation opened on August 12th. Then you see on the 15th, the football coach resigned. And then the superintendent yesterday sent this letter out noting that they had become aware of a additional video, Jake, which demonstrates that the hazing was much more widespread in the words of the superintendent and involved many more students than previously known and said that led to the decision to cancel the entire football season. In that letter, the superintendent saying, quote, the kind of hazing that occurred in our facilities with this team is reprehensible. It simply cannot and will not be tolerated. Now, I should point out, the superintendent also noted the impact that canceling the entire football season would have, specifically talking about the cheerleading teams, the marching band, saying they would look for other opportunities for them, and also they're going to have to rethink homecoming, he said, because it is generally, of course, focused around a football game. What about the other two high schools? Um, They're both investigating allegations, but the seasons have not been canceled, right? Correct. Season has not been canceled, so there are two. One is in the Athens area, so that's closer to the New York state line, as you can see on your map there in northern Pennsylvania. This involved allegations of bullying, hazing, and improper behavior, as the superintendent said in a letter that was posted on Facebook among both varsity and JV players. Incidents that allegedly started at a camp in mid-July at Bloomsburg University and then continued into some of the preseason and practices at the school facilities. So at the moment, that season is not being canceled. In fact, the superintendent said it would not be canceled. It is being investigated, though. They are obviously working with local authorities there. Um, and then separately, Mohawk High School in western Pennsylvania, their season is on pause while they investigate some allegations there. CNN has reached out, uh, and we're waiting for further comment. All right, Erica Hill, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, why shipping wars at FedEx could mean delays for your holiday orders. Stay with us. Our money lead now, another reason to do your holiday shopping early, maybe even now. Thousands of contractors who deliver most FedEx packages are threatening to stop working as of the day after Thanksgiving. Now, you may not realize it, but those people dropping off your packages 
in your neighborhood almost certainly don't work for FedEx, but were hired by a network of some 6,000 independent businesses that FedEx pays to make deliveries. The contractors say they're being squeezed by higher costs for fuel, trucks, and driver pay, while the FedEx division's revenue is up 60%. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. We actually read them. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you know, you can listen to The Lead from whence you get your podcasts. All two hours sitting there for you like a ripe mango. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Alex Marquardt in for Wolf Blitzer, right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 